When someone begins to question their faith, the last thing church leaders want to do is say the wrong thing or handle it in a way that will further push them away. With so many historical concerns or doctrinal questions, what is a leader supposed to do? I'm happy to report that Leading Saints is here to help with the Questioning Saints Library. This is a full library of 20 plus presentations related to how to minister to an individual who is questioning their faith. We cover topics like how to answer tough questions, maintaining relationships when someone leaves the church, and how to embrace doctrinal ambiguity. If you want to review all the sessions from the Questioning Saints Library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org slash one four. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. Before we jump into the content of this episode, I kind of feel it's important that I introduce myself. Now, many of you have been around a long time. You're well familiar with my voice and with Leading Saints as an organization. But if you're not, well, my name is Kurt Frankham, and I am the executive director of Leading Saints and the podcast host. Now, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through, well, content creation like this podcast and many other resources at leadingsaints.org. And uh, we don't act like we have all the answers or uh, know exactly what a leader should do or not do, but we like to explore the concepts of leadership, the science of leadership, what people are researching about leadership and see how we can apply them to a Latter-day Saint world. So here we go. Today I'm in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and uh, sitting down with Ian Nishimoto. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's good yeah. to be here. Yeah, I'm uh, mm-hmm. glad we we worked out this opportunity to um, to record. And while I'm in town, and you were one of the people that came to the top of the the list as I was looking <laughs> for, as people were suggesting suggesting guests. And so I guess you're you've, you've garnered some level of respect around here. So, <laughs> well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. And, and what is it you do for work? I just retired in May from being an instructor for 24, 25 years at the local community college in um, law enforcement. Oh, wow. So I taught in the police academy as well as the two-year degree in uh, certifying students uh, to become law enforcement officers in the state of Wisconsin. Oh, and so former police officer? That's correct. Uh, I did full-time, part-time for about 31 years. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and then got an opportunity to teach. And did, I, I imagine that was, uh, that was a, a beneficial part of your career. Oh, yes. Yeah. It was very good. Anytime you can influence uh, a bigger audience rather than a traffic stop or some sort of <laughs> <laughs> bad way, it's always a good feeling. It's a, it's a great way to influence people to do the right nice. thing. So. Uh, originally from Green Bay or where were you raised? No, my uh, parents were born and raised in Hawaii. And um, 
uh, he, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, my father went into the war. And so he served in the 442nd that went to Germany and served as the all Japanese American um, unit out there. And um, he made the military his career. And so came home and asked my mom to marry him and and off they went. So I traveled around quite a bit around the United States and had an opportunity to live in Japan for a while. So, yeah. Nice. So were, were both your parents Japanese? Yes, they're okay. both Japanese. They're both born and raised in Hawaii. Oh wow! Did they speak Japanese in the home growing oh, yeah. up? Yeah, yeah. When they didn't want us to understand certain things. Oh, yes. Okay, so yeah. they didn't speak Japanese with you or teach you Japanese. They did, but oh, okay. it wasn't fluent. It was just broken uh-huh. language. It was just broken English, uh, not English, broken Japanese yeah. is what it was. And we wow. also uh, learned Hawaiian as well. So we learned kind of three languages all together, um, <laughs> off and on. Mainly English was spoken in the home though. And so how did you end up in Green Bay? Well, I met my wife at the infamous mating grounds of BYU. <laughs> okay. I've heard that story before. <laughs> and I was going to Utah Technical College. I was just graduating. I just got off my mission and thought, well, I'll finish out there and then head up to where I wanted to go was Weber State. So I met my wife. Uh, she was in a family home evening group that we had. And so we met, we uh, fell in love and, and the rest is history. So. Nice. And yeah. is she from Green Bay then? Or? Yes, she's actually okay. Oneida. She's from, she's oh, okay. an Oneida tribal member. Yes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> tell, tell me about the Oneida tribe. And I mean, obviously it's a Native American tribe, but any, any other details you could add to that? Sure. The Oneida tribe, uh, the Oneida nation, actually, uh, they're from, they're the Iroquois, um, from six nations of the Iroquois, um, Native Americans in New York. So uh, a group of them, Part of them went to Canada. Uh, part of them stayed there in New York, in Oneida, you know, uh, New York, and uh, a section of them came this way to Oneida, Wisconsin, right wow. outside of Green Bay. Mm-hmm. Nice. So there is an official reservation in the Green Bay area. Is That's that, correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's not because my in-laws live in Blackfoot, Idaho, and there's a, a reservation nearby. You know, it's very rural and spread out, lots of land, and you can sort of tell when you're on the reservation. But here in Green Bay, it's not necessarily like that. No, it's beautiful. It, in fact, part of Green Bay lies, the part of uh, the city limits actually lies on the reservation. Oh, wow. So there's some a lot of um, uh, political things that go on between the tribe and, and the city of Green Bay. Nice, nice. You're currently in the, the stake presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many how many wards are in your stake? There's uh, 13 units in the stake. Okay, and the Oneida ward is one of those. That's correct. Okay. Has that, uh, the Oneida ward, been around a while then? Yeah, well, it was a branch. Okay. And um, actually, for the growth of this area in the northeast area of Wisconsin, the Oneida branch was formed um, in the late 40s. Uh, 1948, I believe it was, when the first branch was uh, hmm. being formed. And since that time, the branch had been open and closed three times. Once in 1970, the other one was 1970, 80. And the last time it was uh, closed was in 1985. Okay. And so um, it had it, it had it its ups and downs. Mm-hmm. And so um, now it's back. And we established a, uh, a branch. When it came back, when we recreated the branch was in 1994. Wow. Um, yeah. And you were around at that time? Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. 
Nice. And, and you served as the Bishop of the Oneida Ward for how many years? <laughs> well, I served as the branch president for Oh, okay. For twice and then bishop as once. Okay. So, so were you the bishop when that transition happened from branch to ward? That's a good question. Actually, I was not. Oh, okay. And so, <laughs> um, so actually at that time, um, uh, we made a switch because we were in another stake. And so uh, when we went from the stake to this stake, from the Appleton stake to the Green Bay stake, uh, I was, I was, transitioning from patriarch to non-functioning patriarch. Okay. So, we're, been, so we're switching. So you were so, the patriarch in the last state. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And was that after your time as the the bishop of the Oneida Ward? Or? No, that was before. Oh, before. Okay. Yeah. So wow. Oneida was a branch. And then so when, when they when they formed, or I'd say they, they took the Oneida Ward and actually annexed it to the Oneida branch, I'd say, annexed it to the... Um, Green Bay stake, and then they took part of the second ward, Green Bay second ward, put it with Oneida, and made us Oneida, the Oneida ward. Gotcha. And that was in 2016, I believe. Oh, okay. It's not and too so, long ago. No, it was really recent. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so when it comes to like branches or wards of, of reservations, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but what, I mean, obviously I would imagine most of the members of that ward, they're very Americanized. You're speaking English in, in the church and in the classes. Do they have their own language or? Yes, they do. In okay. fact, that was resurrected not too long ago as well. Wow. Um, so we saw a lot of things happening at the time that the church was actually reestablishing itself in the community. Yeah. And I realize it's going to sound like a very naive question, but oh. I think it's worth getting out. Like, so why do we need a reservation branch? Why not just group them into all the other English speaking wards in, in the area? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Well, one, one thing is it, the Oneida area or the Oneida branch originally, when it was established in 1948, it opened and closed, like I mentioned before. So a lot of the times it was open and closed. It wasn't lack of uh, participation or activity. The average, I think, historically was 80 to 90 people attending the branch faithfully every week and Sunday. Hmm. So that was their average attendance at that time. And so when the church started growing <coughs> around the areas in the Green Bay Appleton area, they needed Oneida to build them to actually have their numbers to establish either a ward, branch, or even a stake for that matter. Wow. So a lot of the growth started from Oneida. Nice. And so when they closed it, there was the, for the third time, there was a lot of, lot of, uh, tension that happened. Like people didn't like it. Oh no, they okay. did not like that. And I can remember listening and I was a young, young elders corn president at the time. And, uh, when the news came, I remember the branch president and his counselors were just yelling. I, really? I, I could hear it outside the building. It was that loud. I go, wow, this is really intense. So I knew there were some really hard feelings when it was, um, actually dissolved at that time. Yeah. So it was, I would imagine it's something like those, that group of people was, it was part of their identity as Latter-day Saints and as members of the Oneida uh, tribe. That's that? exactly yeah. right. Because it was part of their identity and they relied on the church and they enjoyed the church being there in their community. So it gave them a sense of identity as well in the community. Yeah. And so there was a lot of missionary work that needed to be done as well. <clears throat> so, uh, when that happened, people took it personally. Um, my wife and I looked at it, well, 
I think it's kind of it was a blessing actually because I think when I look back, we talk about leadership. I think the leadership needed more polishing hmm. and and a little bit of insight. And that's what my feeling was when it closed. So I was kind of happy in that end, but the other end, I thought, well, this is not going to turn out very well. Yeah. Especially if we try to reopen it again, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Cause then people think, why are you going to reopen it if you're just going to shut it down again? Right? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's tough. And and so, but during that, and this was what years did, did that happen? The dissolving of it? I think that was in 1985. I oh, okay. It was. So a while ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the, the idea was just to dissolve it into the, the local um, traditional units and then and then maybe with time, it would be in a better place to open up a, a branch again. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so while the numbers were being, the numbers were <laughs> being satisfied on, on making a stake or making another unit, or whatever, um, the idea cropped up and saying, okay, we want to open up Oneida again. Yeah. And exactly what you said, there was a lot of backlash from wow. that. We had a special meeting. What years was this, would you say? So in the 90s, in the early 90s. Okay. And so uh, they wanted to open up the branch again, and there was a lot of opposition in that. And so we had special meetings uh, to get feelers to see if what the feeling was like. And so uh, one of the meetings I remember was on the reservation at the Norbert Hill Center, which is one of the central buildings on the Oneida Reservation, where they have meetings and a lot of gatherings there. And so we had our meeting there and members uh, of that were there who some were active, some were inactive because of the falling out, the dissolving of the, the branch earlier. So there was a lot of a lot of friction there. And, and there's quite a few that were in opposition of of having that branch reestablished. Mm-hmm. And opened again. And just like you said, there yeah. was, it was just. There's just still some hurt there. Oh, for, there was a lot of yeah. hurt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of hurt. Yeah. But they moved forward with it and and knew that it may be rough at the beginning. But Yeah. And we purchased some land um, previously. And we thought this would be a great place for a chapel to be built in the future. And so um, it came time to really propose and being serious about opening up a branch. Meanwhile, the old branch building was built, that that was built in 1950 by the members back then, I uh-huh. mean, hand-built. Yeah, yeah. And so um, that was pretty bad. It was, it was horrible. I mean, it was just all coming apart and it was just falling apart and deteriorating. So we, <clears throat> they asked me, well, what, what should we do? And I says, well, if you're going to open up a branch, you need to put a building there to show in good faith that you're going to stay. Yeah. We're literally putting footings down. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so we didn't want, um, at least I didn't feel that, that, uh, that the church had to show that they're sincerely interested in opening a branch permanently and not just a branch, but growth again to establish in the Oneida community on, on the reservation. Mm -hmm. So, there was a lot of great meetings that we've had, a lot of spiritual meetings that we've had. And then we proposed it. We finally proposed it to the church to build a building there. Um, and I should back up. We did create the branch. Um, there was a lot of opposition. I remember um, when I was called as the branch president, uh, we only had 
my counselors didn't you want to be a part of it hmm. and so i had no counselors oh really <laughs> really so they just said i'm just not doing this yeah yeah they, they find said, other counselors yeah i'm done with this they said ian we're not doing this again. I go, oh, wow. Oh, come on, you guys. You got to help out. You go, we don't have to do anything. I go, okay, fine. And um, it was a, were a lot of the members just sort of taking a break and, and being inactive for a while, or were they just going to a traditional family ward, English speaking ward? Yeah, they were going to their wards that were assigned to after the dissolve. Okay. Uh, okay. So if you live more towards Appleton, you went to Appleton. If you live more towards Green Bay, you're Green Bay. But we were actually assigned to go to Green Bay. Uh huh. And part of wow. the Appleton stake at that time, and the stake split into Green Bay and Appleton. Gotcha. So anyway, <clears throat> so there was a lot of people who didn't really care to go to Oneida because they're still hurt. I mean, especially some of the leaders. So, so it was just me and the elders corn president, and that's how we started. Wow! Our first Sunday in October, of, um, 1994. That's when we were, uh, opened up the branch. I remember going to, um, they assigned us the building in Appleton. This is before you built that new right, building. Right, before uh -huh. we had anything. Uh -huh. And so we looked at that and we went in there and I never felt so alone in my whole life. Oh, wow. The whole branch could sit on the first two pews of the, of oh. the chapel. And there was only maybe 30, 35 people. And I says, good Lord, how are you going to help me? I need your help yeah. to, to get this branch to where it needs to be. How are we going to get more people there? So, Oh, my goodness. Um, Cause, and the tough thing is you knew the people were there, but they just didn't want to come back. And exactly. So, yeah, that's a oh, tough yeah. spot. Um, back then, home teaching was more like missionary work. Yeah. It was... It was um, very different, but, and what would you say like at that time, if everybody did come to the Oneida war to in, in the Oneida tribe, how many would you, you guess you'd have at that point? Probably over a hundred. Oh, okay. So yeah. good solid ward. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. We would have at least a hundred and okay. plenty enough priests to, to support a ward or even a branch at that time. But we, um, after that, we just, but kind of like, oh boy, we got some work to do. Yeah. So we'd roll up our sleeves and just went to work. Yeah. Do you and remember then, like in that <clears> beginning, like <throat> what are the specific things you thought this is what we're going to do? We're going to visit people. We're going to have activities. Or I mean, what did you do to maybe start getting some momentum? Right. So I, uh, my, uh, our, our elders corn president and myself, we got together and we have to start with leadership and that's where we're going to start. We're going to invite everybody we're going to have open arms. We understand why they're angry. Um, we'll explain to them that we need their help. We need to explain to them that we're here to stay. We're going to build a building. And I just had a lot of faith that we were. And so we went about doing it the right way uh, as far as building the building. And <clears throat> so we had a lot of help from the, the stake leaders, of course. And so uh, we put in a proposal to build a building, even though it wasn't within the exact guidelines of the church as far as travel was concerned, because there was a building within 30 minutes at that time. Mm. That's that was one of the requirements. But they felt as we wrote the letter, as we wrote the executive summary and everything else that we had to submit to the church, it was very well written. We had some really great people who helped us do that. And uh, the church um granted us a building oh good yeah so it wasn't much of a administrative fight or anything with the church or not really because at that time after i saw that that happened what can we do how can we serve the people better 
one of the things I thought of because I looked at our demographics in our congregation is mostly elderly. Hmm. And if you never traveled in Wisconsin winters for 30 minutes, it's a long, long time. <laughs> so uh, that would put a hardship on most of our congregation of 30 people at that time. So what I did was I opened our house and we met at my house every Sunday. Even though you had a building. Even but though this, we had a building. This, your house was more convenient for maybe the, the elderly? Exactly. Okay. So instead of traveling 30 minutes, they only have to travel five minutes, which is a huge difference. Nice. I love that. So you got creative, really. I mean, yeah. yeah. So my basement turned into our chapel. Our bedrooms turned into classrooms. And so we had a great time. I mean, you talk about unifi unification, unifying a branch. Wow. That was awesome. That was a lot of fun. We had a wow. good time. But and then we grew from that. And then we, <laughs> my brother-in-law moved out of his um, home, his trailer home, and moved into a, a nice home. And so we asked him, can we use the trailer? He says, yeah. So we gutted it and used that part of another like priesthood meeting we would hold there. Oh, wow. Sometimes we'd hold sacrament meeting there. And then you would use my mother-in-law's house for Relief Society uh -huh. and other things. So, and, and this is in the 90s, right? Yeah, like, this, this is, is in like 1910. No, this is 94, 95. Wow, that's incredible. And then in uh, 97, I think it was, or 96, we actually uh, had the building built to the original piece of property that we had, that the church had purchased wow. about 10 years before. Nice. And so during that time, as you're bouncing around to different homes and whatnot, was it a steady sort of growth? Like some, yeah. suddenly this family would show up, you know, and, yeah. and then you'd add another one and- That's exactly right. Wow. It was a steady growth. We all, we grew to about 60 people. Wow. And so- By the time you moved into the new chapel? Right. Okay. And so once we got the chapel in and everything was settled and people knew that we were to stay, uh, there was a lot of people I went and visited because they thought the church will never come back. And I said, it's back. And you promised me you'd come. Oh, <laughs> so, nice. So we had a lot of good people come back. Wow. And uh, activity started. And so by the time I was released after six years, um, our state president proposed to build an uh, addition to the chapel because we had over 120 people coming into a 4,000 square foot Okay, building. so it was like so, a smaller chapel design. Exactly. So okay. it's built so that it could you could add on. It's like a phase, okay. a phase building. So the first building was only four thousand square feet, but we took it. We and said, you were the only unit that was using that building. Exactly. Huh? Exactly. So it was the first kind, first type of its kind to be built, um, especially in this area. But anywhere in the church, it was a different design. So we were very blessed by having that design and now we have the second phase to that but we're now pushing for the final phase is to make it an actual ward building if you will wow so, so how many years was that from being recreating reestablishing the branch to having the building in the estimate well i'd say 20 years oh okay so it was uh, 94 97 and then three years uh, to that second phase it probably was uh, no, I'd say about 10 years. Okay. Yeah, less than okay. 10 years. So how long were you the branch president then from when it was reestablished? Re about six years. Okay. And then uh, the change happened, um, changed leadership. And then later on down the line, I was called again. Uh -huh. uh, to branch president again. Branch uh -huh. president again. And then in 2016, when they annexed part of the Green Bay Second Ward to 
the Oneida branch, we became a ward. Uh, Bishop was called, and then he left, and we had, <laughs> and so he had a, he took another job somewhere else, and so um, they asked me to be a bishop again. I said, or bishop for the yeah. ward, and I said, yeah, sure. Yeah. Wow. And was that your first time ever being a bishop, quote unquote bishop, rather than a branch president? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that nice. only lasted a year and then I was called into the stakes. So oh, okay. And then yeah. your current calling. Yes. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So um, <laughs> I just appreciate just that because I bet day to day or week to week, month to month, even maybe year to year, you're thinking, man, this is a slow go at times. I mean, what, were there discouraging times or was it always, were you always upbeat about it? I tried to be upbeat about it, but what I learned, I learned a lot of things. First of all, inactives. You know, I, I always thought, okay, no problem. We'll get them back to church and they should be able to remember everything that they remembered and, and get going on, on callings and things like that. And that didn't happen. I learned something important about that, that can't assume that they remember everything that they once knew. Hmm. It's almost like retraining them again. Yeah, especially when certain things might have changed in the church policies and procedures, but mostly about their spiritual side of things. And I learned that in the first six months when we had some inactives come back and I go, wow, how dumb I was for assuming that they would know how to do things mm. and know how to organize and keep things going in their homes and being active in their homes and and understanding the purpose of the church. And so <clears throat> that was a big learning curve for me. And I go, wow, that was that was yeah. huge for me. I think there was um, there's another thing that I was contending with, and that's with the Oneida tribe. <clears throat> Not with them personally, but it's just a community or a cultural thing. And so, um, you know, we've had some differences between white people and Native American people. Mm. And so there was some tension of that as well. And that's what I had to keep balance on. And so we had people who were pretty staunch and very um, active in proclaiming about their Native American heritage <clears throat> to some people that are white that they don't get along with. And they use that as a, as a leverage to yeah. cause some friction. And so, and and so they tried to bring that into the church and I wouldn't let that happen. And what would that like look like, generally speaking, <clears throat> like it would be a common Sunday school or sacrament meeting or what? what would it that could look like? happen anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I've, I, it's happened in sacrament meetings, happened in Sunday school. Yeah. It's happened on conversations or somebody going at that time home teaching or what we call ministering today. But um, there were some things that were culturally heavy. I was I, According to some, I was very prejudiced mm -hmm. and, and that's fine. You want to think that that's fine, but I'm neither white or Native yeah. American. So whatever yeah. you say doesn't bother me. You can say what you want to say about me. It doesn't bother me. Yeah, because you're a minority as well. To, right. Yeah. And so I, I, I wasn't going to have that. I said, first of all, we established that anybody that comes through those doors is welcomed here. doesn't matter. And I, you know, I expressed that. This is not the Church of Jesus Christ of the Oneida tribe. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And anybody's welcome to this, hmm. to this branch. And of all people, we should welcome everybody here. And that's part of the Oneida tradition as well. At least that's the way I felt. Yeah. And so let's continue a tradition. <laughs> let's continue a 
a tradition that helps people to heal them and bring them back to Christ. That's what we're here to do. And so um, some that didn't sit well with some. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and, and I want to ask, like, yeah. did this typically happen? Like you standing up in sacrament meeting and reiterating that was it, did you have to have a lot of one-on-one conversations with particular people or, cause I know I'm sure there's other leaders listening who maybe experience a similar dynamic and mm-hmm. they don't really know. It's almost easier to ignore and just hope it goes away. <laughs> right. Yeah. You wish you could ignore it, but you can. Yeah. And sometimes it was direct in sacrament meeting. And most of the people know me and Oneida that I'm pretty direct, especially when it comes to certain things such as that, especially hurting people who don't intentionally want to hurt people, but they just don't know how to express themselves. Hmm. And I understand that. But And sometimes it was in private conversations. Um, this one <laughs> uh, member, uh, she was adamant. She was adamant that I was just a, a prejudiced person and and... Um, she actually called me a Chinese communist, which I thought, oh, wow. was, I thought that was pretty funny because you got the wrong country, first of all. <laughs> you know, I thought, okay, you can call me anything you want, right? But, um, but as a leader, it, it pushes you one way or another. And you just got, you just have to remember who you represent and who you work, who you are working for yeah. and who you're serving. There are still sons and daughters of God, and we still have to really extend our Christ-like um, heart to them and to love them as best we can. Yeah. And it's hard. And it's yeah. really hard sometimes because it's predominant in that culture, in the culture itself, and in the community itself where, you know, it's not so bad now, but back then it was pretty black and white. Um, where yeah. people stood, which is fine with me. But. Yeah. And I just love that concept of <clears throat> as a leader, just constantly reiterating the message, like anybody's welcome here. Right. And, right. and I'm sure there were times where somebody walked in your office and pretty legitimate, like complaint and, you know, and this other person's a problem. And, right. and it basically comes back to, well, we got to figure out how everybody can feel welcome here because we're right. the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So what are we going to do next? We can't just tell this person not to come back, right? That's not an option. So what do we got to do, right? Right, exactly. And so that started, one of the simplest things that uh, we did when I was 14 and we're 14 years old, we were traveling to Japan from my dad's calling. And and so anyway, we stopped in Hawaii and it was his old ward and it was an open air chapel. And what impressed me was once they said aloha, everybody said aloha back. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just just big, and it just yeah. made you feel welcome. In, in the sacrament meeting, right? Right, yeah, in the sacrament yeah. meeting, yeah, right? That's awesome. Right, right. Yeah. So I said, you know, we got to start that here. And so we do, and it still continues today. Oh, really? Yeah. It was, you say aloha, or oh, do you no, say? say good morning? Oh, okay. Whatever tongue. Yeah, it yeah. Could be yata, it could be in Navajo, it could be in Oneida, it could be in Japanese, it could be in Korea, it could be in German, but whatever they say, we say that back. Oh, that's cool. And so it's really a good feeling when you walk in. Nice. And, you know, it's just a way of welcoming people in. Yeah. There's a great spirit in Oneida. Um, and that's from leaders from past, I think. It's from leaders that that blessed the area. Um, President Benson blessed the first Oneida, or the the chapel that was built in 1940, 50, 52. November of 1952 is when uh, President Benson actually dedicated the building in Oneida. Oh, wow. And then uh, Elder Holt 
dedicated to the building that we have now on the first phase. So nice. Yeah. But it, you know, I was reading that this morning, actually I was reading their blessing upon the area and that's what's blessing the area is wow. those blessings and they're eternal and they continue on. Is that recorded somewhere? You have it written down? Mm-hmm. Wow. If you want a copy of it, I have oh, it. Interesting. And I'm sure most areas they do that, right? When they dedicate a building or whatever. And what a great thing to remind ourselves to go back to and say, what did this this, whether it's a prophet or a seer or somebody who's acting under those keys, right. what did they say? You know, and, right. and how can we refer to that more and more? It's yeah. interesting because I compared the two <laughs> dedicatory prayers. Mm-hmm. And this is when elder, when President Benson was Elder Benson, of course. But yeah. I compared the two and just kind of paralleled the things that they said. Wow. It's really interesting. That's cool. Yeah, it That's really cool. is. Nice. So. Um, so what would you say just, you know, we've talked about the interesting history and mm-hmm. the, the struggles at times, but if you were talking to a brand new branch president or bishop of a reservation, a Native American reservation ward uh, or branch, any general tips you'd give them to, to really make that succeed? Yeah, it, it goes back to emulating the Savior's love. That's the bottom line. Hmm. Um, I've been asked that question by other general authorities as well. Um, they asked me, you know, out west, we're looking at the membership going this way, but the branch in Oneida is going this way. Why is that? And it's because it, you have to, yeah, you just have to love the people. Mm-hmm. Just love them and do the best you can. Uh, be patient. Things will happen for that person or for that leader. But really, it comes down to the love of the Savior. Yeah. They feel it. They'll mask it through calling you names. <laughs> They'll mask it by uh, doing things that aren't, you know, uh, within church guidelines. They'll do things just to spite you. Um, but again, what do you think the Savior went through? Yeah. Right. So what did that look like for Bishop Nishimoto? Like, like, how did you love the people like on a day to day experience? How, how, how did you actually go about doing that? What did it look like? I think that took years to figure out. Mm-hmm. And first of all, is the culture. What is valuable to them? And what uh, what do they place value on? And that's what I would look at mm-hmm. and help them understand that that value comes from our Heavenly Father. That those things that they value the most is what I focused on. Whether it be just talking to them, uh, asking them stories from the past, because that's so important with family history oh, yeah. and, and things like that. I think most of them love uh, to listen to old stories and just to talk. Yeah, especially related to the tribe, right? Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And for me, that educated me uh, tremendously. And there's just a pure spirit there that uh, that exists. Um, we've uh, Recently, we've had... I think uh, several baptisms per month. Um, We've been averaging, I think, one per month, I think. Uh, And then also we've had a lot of move-ins from out west, from all over. And Mm -hmm. it's just not because it's their job. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of them, when I talked to them, in fact, yesterday I just had an interview with uh, with the family, and they moved here because they felt like they needed to be here. So it's not just because of a job or they wanted to go somewhere different. Um, there's a com, uh, common denominator with all of them that they felt the spirit to move here and they love it here in, in the Oneida Ward. So it, what does that tell me as a leader? Something's being, you know, being prepared 
And I've always felt that someday Oneida will be a stake. Hmm. That's what I really feel down deep down inside that it should, it would be a stake soon. I, I have the boundaries kind of figured out. <laughs> oh yeah. You got the maps ready to yeah. go. Huh? <laughs> um, but and, and has that happened? Is there a, like Native American stakes uh, out there yet or? No. Okay. So this would be a first so. if, if it did happen. <laughs> yeah. I love the faith. Yeah, I love yeah. that. I, I think it will be. Um, and I just feel that, uh, and of course, President Petit and, and the state presidency is working hard to form at least another stake or two that we'd yeah. like to like to have. And I think that's what the Lord would like to have here yeah. in, in Green Bay. That's cool. So That's awesome. Um I want to make sure I'm not missing. So you mentioned your dad's calling, doing some traveling. Was your dad a general authority or? Well, he, um, interesting. He um, was called to preside over the Japan Fukuoka mission. Oh, okay. 1973. Wow. So he went there and we went with him. And, um, and what was his name? Arthur. Okay. Arthur K. The middle initials K and Nishimoto. Wow. And so he was called to, uh, to Japan. And what's interesting about that, and I don't want to go off key here, but sure, uh, right. off off the pathway here. But um, that was all part of a revelation given by Heber J. Grant that at some point in the future, the the Japanese will listen, will hear the gospel from their uh, counterparts that grew up in Hawaii. Yeah. And so, because he uh, G. Grant spent some time there as a young man, exactly, right? yeah. exactly. So um, he said that the the Japanese Americans from Hawaii will bring the gospel to the Japanese in Japan, and that's how it's going to be reached. Wow! So all these kids that grew up in Hawaii when they're young and little teenagers uh-huh. um, playing basketball at at Mutual um, became members of the church, went to war, came back. And now they're all called to Japan. Now, wow. Adney Komatsu, Elder Komatsu at uh-huh. the time, uh, he was the first, I think one of the very first to go over and start the mission. But I think when my dad went over, if I remember right, he had the Japan West mission. And I think there was only two, maybe three missions, maybe four at that time. And then before he left, there were nine missions that were created in Japan in that three years. And wow. then all of them were presided over by all these kids in Hawaii. Oh, really? Yeah, that grew up together wow. as youth. Yeah. There's a book that needs to be, maybe it's already been uh, written, I don't know, <laughs> or, or a movie that needs to be written. Yeah. So that's interesting. Well, we thought that was very interesting. Then after he was done with his mission, he was called to uh, preside over the Tokyo Temple, the building of the Tokyo Temple with Elder Kikuchi at that time. Hmm. And so, and Elder Kikuchi knew my brothers when they were on their mission in Japan. So mm-hmm. it was pretty interesting how that all, you know, the church is so close. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, yeah it's so family interesting. Yeah. So, uh, and he, at that time, I think the church was uh, first breaking out into regions. So he had to set up like a church office uh-huh. and the temple the church office was to serve the whole Far East. So you're talking about China, Taiwan, Korea, all over in that area. Wow. So he had quite a thing to accomplish before he came back to the United States. But I thought that was pretty interesting as yeah. well, how that all happened. And I bet it was such a, I don't know the right word, but surreal feeling to your father 
fighting in World War II, experiencing Pearl Harbor, and then at some point going back to Japan yeah, to exactly. teach these people that they were essentially fighting against his people, uh, <laughs> exactly. teach them the gospel, right? Well, right. That's, man, what a, a remarkable thing to see in one lifetime. Right. right. And we think yeah. of the just the the political dynamics that we experience today and think, man, you know, the Middle East or whatever, that'll, yeah. that'll never happen. Or even now Russia is, you know, it's right. hard to imagine that really thriving there again. And, but so much can happen, right? When Oh yeah. I thought my dad was on something when he, because <laughs> the little <laughs> island of Okinawa was in the mission and he said, that'll be a stake someday. And I go, really? Come on, dad. <laughs> <laughs> but look what we have now. There's a temple being built in Okinawa. So wow. It's just amazing how the Lord knows what he wants done. And we just, we're just instruments in his hands to, to, yeah. to grow it. It's fun to be along for the ride, right? Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, any other tip or uh, encouragement you'd give to somebody who's, who's leading a, a Native American uh, reservation branch or ward? Um, just not really. Okay. It's just loving them. Yeah. And, and missionaries that come to our ward or our branch at that time, we had couples that came. They were fantastic missionaries. Mm. We had one couple that never, never stepped out of Salt Lake City. So uh -huh. <laughs> there's a few <laughs> so of those. Yeah. It was some education that we had to do. And I said, and my, my counselors were getting really upset with them because they were Constantly complaining. I said, no, I'll just wait till the last six months of their mission because my counselors never served a mission. So I said, just wait and you'll see. So we had a, uh, a meeting one night. And I said, listen, why don't you, you guys, have you ever, um, brother and sister so-and-so, have you ever been to the Oneida Museum? And they go, no. I go, why don't we go over there and learn about the culture and learn about the people? And they did. And they learned more. And they learn more and they solve the love of the people that love them. Yeah. And so once they figured that out, <laughs> it was really interesting because the, the last month of that, we don't want to leave. Yeah. We don't want to leave. <laughs> we we want to stay here. So yeah, again, what a great lesson. It, it's just a, it's just loving the people. That's all I can really yeah. advise and just be patient learn the culture. If you don't understand the culture learn what the people value. Yeah. What do they really value? And, and, and common denominator, everybody wants to be happy. They want to be joy. They want to feel joy. They want to know what family is. And mm -hmm. so the gospel is the perfect answer for it. It's just a matter of how we present it and how we go about doing it. Yeah. And the Lord will lead us that way. He always does. We just need to listen yeah. <laughs> and just and follow. But uh, the bottom the bottom line, big denominator is to love and the love unconditionally. It's, yeah. it's, it's tough. It's hard. I'll guarantee that. Yeah. I love that concept of, of go to their museum. Right. Yeah. And obviously there is an actual Oneida museum, but a lot of times maybe if, if these people don't have a museum, that museum is their home, go to exactly. their home, learn about them, their history, you know, that's you know a, what makes them tick. Right. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. That's a perfect way of putting it. Cool. Yeah. They don't have a museum. Go to their homes. Yeah. You've got to know who they are. Who are you ministering to? Who are you loving? Yeah. Go see them. Visit them. Yeah, make sure, cool. you know, and just be a service to them. That's yeah. all they want. All right. Another <clears throat> random thing you slipped in there is you've been, you've been a patriarch. Mm -hmm. And how does... How does that work? You're still currently a patriarch, but you're an inactive patriarch. Like, does it say on your church records patriarch <laughs> or how does that work? No, it doesn't say patriarch, okay. but it, it is non-functioning. So when you're not um, called or active mm -hmm. doing it, it's just non, it, the, the, 
the title they give you is non-functioning patriarch. And you can still give blessings to just your like grandkids yeah. or family or whatever, but yeah, immediate family. But yes. you have a different patriarch in the in the stake yes. that's active, right? Yeah, Brother yeah. Zeal, he's phenomenal. He's great. Awesome. So what how old were you when you were made patriarch? Well, I was <laughs> the handbook said fifty five, but I was fifty four. Oh, really? So, yeah. And so there is a there is a minimum age. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Now that was in the old handbook. Okay, I don't know about the yeah, new handbook. That's so. true. That's, <laughs> look that up for the you listeners. Don't <laughs> yeah. don't take it from us. Right. Right. Interesting. Right. So <laughs> what's the story behind that? Um, uh, you know, President Kent, who was the president of the Alton Stake, he searched for a year to find the right patriarch because he knew the other pa- the acting patriarch or the patriarch that was in place, he was having health issues, mm-hmm. health problems. And so he started his search for a patriarch a year before he called me. And um, I remember a five minute interview, you talk about leadership, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I was on the high council and he goes, Ian, do you have a second? I go, sure. He goes, I just need to talk to you. I go, okay. So we walked in his office and it was a five minute interview. I've never felt more, I don't know if it was devastated or if I wasn't doing my work. And he just said, you need to live better. Oh, wow. And I go, okay, you need to study. You need to study more. I go, all right, president, I will do that. He goes, just to let you know, we love you, but you need to, you need to pick it up spiritually. I go, Okay. And that was it. That was my interview. He, but at that point, you didn't say anything about the, the No, patriarch. I had no clue why he said that other than, you know, um, it's not the first time I've been in the principal's office either. But, you know, yeah. I, I, you know I, um, I get it. It was, you know, it was something on his mind. And so, and I always loved President Kent. I mean, he, he's phenomenal. And so I took it as, okay. I'll and do what that. year about was this? Jeez. Sorry, I'm really... Now you're asking really tough questions. <laughs> was, let's see. That was about nine years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. Eight, nine years ago. Okay. So you'd, you'd been the branch president and... Yeah. And, I, yeah. yeah. And that was this time... At that time, I was just on the high council. So okay. I, not just, but I was sure, on the high sure. council. Yeah. But anyways, <laughs> um, I said, okay. And then it was probably about six months later that he pulled me in his office and asked my wife Kim to come with with her and I said oh this is going to be interesting and so he called me as a patriarch and I just about fell over I thought I'm not ready for this yeah he goes you are because I asked you to be yeah and I go okay now I get it wow and he said what was interesting and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this um when he was in the temple he received an answer and he received it by um, actually seeing my mother and father in the temple. Wow. Who were deceased. Powerful experience. Yeah. They were deceased and he saw my other relatives as well. He needed something miraculous to convince himself that this was, <laughs> that Ian was the guy, right? <laughs> exactly. So, wow. and to really make me aware of how important this is yeah. and how... It all came about. So, and that I mean, it's such a unique calling in our in our faith tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, very intimidating, right? I mean, you're. Oh, yeah. Th- we we see patriarchal blessings as personal scripture. I mean, we use that that framing and, and verbiage, and so you put a lot of pressure on yourself. Uh, you know, walking into that that role. So, I mean, what what did you learn in that? Um, you know, transitioning into that that calling. 
Well, I felt very inadequate, of course, yeah. very inadequate. And um, I did take it upon myself to even study even more than what I was studying, but more focused on tribes, more focused on the 12 tribes of Israel, focused on Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, all those things that yeah. uh, pertain to patriarchal blessings. And I learned a lot from that particular calling. You're, all, you're, on, you're on an island. You're all by yourself. And I couldn't understand that until after maybe the first year of giving blessings. And I go, I understand why we don't have any other calling attached to this. Yeah. It can be very distracting. Yeah. And um, after, I, after a year, there's times where I didn't even want to go back to work. I was having so much um, joy giving blessings and seeing people step a little bit higher when they're done with their blessings, when they when they receive their blessings, being more confident about themselves, knowing that somebody cares for them. That's, you know, higher than that's the highest up, right? Our Savior, Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father who care for them. I learned a lot about um, the importance of a patriarch and being prepared for that. I remember uh, President Kent said, you know, you, you might want to go to the church library and read those patriarchal blessings out there. Go, oh, that's a good idea. Next time I'm out in Salt Lake or request to go look at some of them. And I called the church office. <laughs> I, I just called the church library and said, hey, I would like to view some of the patriarchal blessings before I, I give my first patriarchal blessings to get the feel for what I'm supposed to be. And, and these are like patriarchal blessings from your stake or yeah, yeah, uh, whatever. I, I or know, just any, I, yeah, okay. any patriarchal yeah. blessings. Let me so see I, the other guys work, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so when I called the missionary that answered the phone, he says, um, um, brother Nishimoto, can I just put you on hold? And I go, sure can. And so, He's got. He said, "I had to check on some things." So, next thing I heard was the secretary of the quorum of the twelve. I go, <laughs> oh no! I go, oh my gosh! I go. I was speechless because I go. I didn't think we go that high. You yeah, know, thought, but oh. there is like a like the quorum of the twelve is what is who almost presides over the the patriarchs. There's like some yeah, connection yeah, like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And so <clears throat> she said very politely, very nicely. She says, "The brethren trust you." You don't need to do that. We don't do that practice anymore. <laughs> and I go, oh, okay. Yeah. But to hear the words that the brethren trust you, I mean, that Oof. really, yeah. really um, impressed me tremendously to where it just puts you on your knees and saying, I need your help. Mm -hmm. I need the, all the help I can get to understand this more and to really confidently and spiritually give this person their their blessing and yeah. so it, it was very interesting it was a big learning curve again i didn't give my first patriarchal blessing for about a month or six weeks uh -huh. before i gave my first one and now i understand why they wait before they give their first patriarchal blessing oh interesting i, I didn't understand that you need sort of a uh a, a period of reflection and, and, right. you know, getting ready for it. Right. Thing. You yeah. really have to get a bit mentally prepared. And I've talked to other patriarchs and our brother Zeal, who's the patriarch of this stake. Uh -huh. I talked to him as well. And so <clears throat> you're really out there on your own. You have to figure it out. Yeah. I'm talking about learning to hear him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting because it's a um, priesthood office, but it's not like on Sunday you go to the patriarch quorum, right? <laughs> like where you're with other patriarchs, for, you know, per se. Yeah, exactly. And so you feel like an island a little bit. And, you do. Yeah. I mean, I felt like an island. Now coming back into administration. Yeah. 
it was a total shock again. Oh, yeah. You know, things had changed in the church as far as policy and procedure and how to do things. The the technology and everything else changed on the, and I just was completely just unaware of things. So how long were you an active patriarch? Just a little over three years. I wasn't oh, okay. very long. And then they called you back as the bishop right. of the Unida. Right. Board. And I was totally lost. I okay. was totally lost. I go, I don't <laughs> and know what to do. <laughs> I'm surprised your neck's still straight. You've gotten all this whiplash during your, your life here in the church. But. Oh, it's been great. <laughs> wow. And then, um, so went back to the bishop and then a, a year or so, and then you were called in the state presidency. That's correct. Nice. Yeah. And, and we'll see what else life has for you. Huh? I think I'm done. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, any other thought or principle that we didn't touch on that would be worth mentioning or do no, we cover it? I think we covered cool. a lot. Awesome. Uh, so, well, thanks for uh, inviting me here to, or having me here in your stake nonetheless. And it's well, fun to get to know the people. And It's and, great uh, having you here. Yeah. Yeah, for Can't sure. Can't wait for tonight and listen to you. Yeah, we're doing a fireside tonight fireside. with the adults yeah. and the youth. And uh, so it'll be a lot of fun. But uh, last question I have for you is sure. just as you reflect back hmm. on all the, the roles of leadership you've had in the church, you know, both as branch president, bishop, even patriarch, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? I think, yeah, well, that's a really poignant question. Um, that is interesting because the more I learn about leadership, the more I learn about Christ, the more inadequate I feel. Not inadequate, but I know that I it just humbles you even more because there's so many things that I haven't learned yet. And that just drives my thirst to, to, to drive to learn more. And so I, I think um, all the things that I've learned, I've learned that I need to learn more. There's just a wealth of knowledge that, that I need, that I want to learn about. And we see that in simple principles of the gospel. It's amazing. I listen to conferences, everybody else does. I listen to other leaders. And you think of one precept or concept you never even thought about and how simple that is and how it changes your life and how it changes your thinking, how it changes how you study or what to even search for. Uh, so the more I learn, <laughs> the more I need to learn, <laughs> the more I don't know. I'll put it that way. And that concludes this How I Lead interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I would ask you, could you take a minute and drop this link in an email, on social media, in a text, wherever it makes the most sense, and share it with somebody who could relate to this this experience. And this is how we, how we develop as leaders, just hearing what the other guy's doing, trying some things out, testing, adjusting for your area. And uh, that's... That's where great leadership's discovered, right? So we would love to have you uh, share this with uh, somebody in this calling or a related calling, and that would be great. And also, if you know somebody, uh, any type of leader, who would be a fantastic guest on the How I Lead segment, uh, reach out to us. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. Maybe send this in individual an email letting them know that you're going to be suggesting their name for this interview. We'll reach out to them. And... Uh, See if we can line them up. So again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact, and there you can submit all the information and let us know. And maybe they will be on a future How I Lead segment on the Leading Saints podcast. Remember to access the Questioning Saints library for 14 days. Visit leadingsaints.org slash 14.
It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only, only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.